0: Today we have a life-changing interview with Dr. Russell Kennedy, the Anxiety MD. Let's do this.
1: Because I think what we're doing mostly in North America is we're believing, hey, if I could fix the thoughts, I'd be better. And that's true to some extent. And the little analogy that I draw is like, you're kind of in a rowboat, right? And there's a hole in the bottom of the boat and the boat's filling up with water. Now you can bail water out of that boat and it's gonna make you feel a little better because you're dropping the level of of that water. And that's kind of like doing talk therapy. But unless you go under there, unless you seal that hole in the hull of the boat, which is the old alarm that's stuck in your body from old trauma that was never resolved, you're never actually gonna be free of
0: anxiety. Hey Keto Camper. Hope you're having an incredible day. I am your host, Ben Azadi. You can learn more about me over at benazadi.com. Today's episode is a very important episode because we talk about anxiety, depression, doing the inner work, and how to really resolve unhealed traumas, trapped emotions, etc. that hold us back from getting amazing results on our keto lifestyle, fasting lifestyle, everything that you do on your journey here, applying nutrition and fasting and all the things we talk about. It's very important, but what's even more important is the inner work. I believe your success is 95% mindset, 5% strategy. And oh my gosh, today we have Dr. Russell Kennedy, the anxiety MD, who wrote an incredible book called Anxiety Rx. Just a quick backstory, and you'll hear more about this during the conversation with him. My fiance, Natasia, she's had a rough 2022 20, last year. She dealt with a lot of panic attacks, anxiety attacks, depression. And it was a result for many different reasons. Her mom was in the hospital. Her dad was in the hospital. She had some you know, personal things going on. And she was in a funk for quite some time. She got COVID, I got COVID, and it's tough. If you've ever had a partner who's dealing with something like that, it, it takes its toll, not just on the person dealing with it, but the partner, the person around that person. So Natasha was dealing with this, and we were on a trip to Orlando, Florida. We were actually driving to Orlando from Miami to go watch the greatest rock band in the world, The Killers, if you've never seen The Killers, in concert live. You got to watch them. They are the best live performing band in the world. That's a side note. But we drove up to Orlando to watch them. We're driving back and Natasia's coach, Angie Sanchez, incredible uh, health coach, life coach, uh, whatever you want to call her. She's brilliant down here in Miami. She's been working with Natasia. She recommended the book Anxiety Rx by Dr. Russell Kennedy to my fiance. I had never heard of the book or heard of Russell until we were driving back home from Orlando. And she said she just downloaded the book on Audible and she would like to listen to it in the car on that three and a half hour drive home from Orlando to Miami. So I said, sure, let's listen to it. So we play the book. And first of all, Russell is the person who narrates his book on Audible. And I respect that as a fellow author who narrated his book. I know how much much time and dedication and bandwidth that takes. So I love that it was him narrating it. And I first realized he is super funny and relatable. Uh, And just a few minutes into this book, I look over as I'm driving. I look over to the passenger seat. I look at Natasha and she's just crying and bawling her eyes out. And what Russell was sharing in his book was just resonating with Natasha and just at the core of her soul. He went into understanding past trauma, that inner child, And essentially the first seven, 10 years of our life, these relationships we've had, these experiences we've had, determine the way we operate as an adult. And she had all these light bulb moments click. I did too, because she had a tough upbringing. And it was just, it was an incredible experience because out of the crying and out of that pain, it really helped her so much. And she completed the book. Uh, and I completed the book. And I decided to reach out to Dr. Russell Kennedy on Instagram. And I asked him if he was open to coming on the show. And he said yes. So we recorded an incredible conversation. It's a little bit longer than most episodes, about an hour and a half, because it was just, just so much to unpack. Uh, this is a great episode for not just you to listen to, but if you have a partner if you have children, it's just, it's so good. So here's what we cover today. We get into, of course, Dr. Kennedy's backstory, being a, a C-minus student, kind of like me, and uh, what he did to get through medical school and how he had, um he didn't see eye to eye with just treating symptoms and he, he wanted to get to the cause. So now he practices a combination of both Western medicine, alternative medicine. He's also a yoga teacher. He's a speaker. He's a man of many, many talents. We're going to get into the biggest enemy in healing anxiety. He says, you cannot expect the book to heal your anxiety. It could only provide you with the framework the work is for you to do. He says, the biggest enemy in healing anxiety is an overprotective ego. We're going to talk about that. We talk about a little bit of Tony Robbins' work, but also changing your physiology in combination with changing your mindset. We'll get into talk therapy and different therapies, psychiatrists, psychologists, and uh, how his approach is a little bit different and how he does not he does see that as valuable options, but it's not the full framework and he'll get into that full framework. We'll get into understanding the root of anxiety. He calls them body alarms and how to um, identify them and put your body in a healing state. We'll talk about the subconscious mind and how we are unconsciously reliving trauma through mind regression. So if you have chronic stress right now, like a lot of people do, or if you've had a traumatic or abusive past, your mind gets pushed back into the time when you experienced such things. And there's a theory that states if you experienced a significant trauma as a child, part of you stays locked at that certain age until it gets brought back up. And then he gets into something called mirror work. Uh, I've never heard of this before, and I love the way he explained it. And you're going to hear him talk about this, but mirror work deals with this by reminding yourself that you are living in the present. So if you struggle with depression, anxiety, overwhelm, this is the episode for you. I encourage you to really just be present, dive right into this conversation, and then go get his book, Anxiety RX, on. Amazon, or wherever you want to get it. We'll put a link down below. And if you want to watch the video format of today's interview, and all of our Keto Camp podcast interviews can be found video format on YouTube. We do some amazing editing on there. You can find it on youtube.com slash ketocamp. We'll drop a link down below. Now, before we get into this life-changing conversation with Dr. Russell Kennedy, I want to take a minute to acknowledge and give a shout-out to the Apple Podcasts rating and review of the day. Here is a five-star review from Farhan3 titled, Always Eagerly Awaiting the Next Episode. I'm so glad I discovered you last year, Ben. Your podcasts have been enlightening to me in so many areas of health, especially keto and fasting. I love how you bring on knowledgeable guests to the show I always take something away from each episode and I implement it into my life. Thank you. Keep up the amazing content you are putting out there. Farhan, thank you so much. I I love what you wrote. First of all, I appreciate you so much for listening to every episode. It's a lot of episodes, three to four per week. But you said something really important. You said, I always take something away and then I implement it into my life. That is the most important part right there. Implementation. The world rewards action takers, not intention takers. It's not the information that you're learning here on the podcast or any podcast or any video that's going to change your life. It's the application. So when you hear somebody say, knowledge is power, that's not fully accurate. Knowledge is potential power. If knowledge was power, I always say this, if knowledge was power, every librarian would be a multimillionaire. It is the application. So Farhan, I want to acknowledge you for applying the nuggets you are learning on the show and thank you so much for taking the time to leave that rating and review. I see you're in Great Britain. Thank you so much for listening from Great Britain. Hey, if you haven't left the Keto Camp podcast a rating or a review on whatever platform you're listening from, please do so right now. Couple quick things before I bring on Dr. Russell Kennedy. In a few days, I am starting my next 90-day heavy metal detox group. It's just in a few days from this release. And here's the deal. I've decided to cap this out at 15 people. Small, it's intimate. You're going to get four 60-minute Zoom calls with me, all the supplements for detox, an online portal with videos from Dr. Pompa, Dr. Mindy Pels, also some testing kits to do at home to look at your membrane inflammation and other incredible things. Everything is included in the price of this program. But here is the thing. We have only two spots left for this, okay? Okay. Two spots left at the time of me recording this. I don't know if those will be taken by the time this is released, but I'm going to just throw it out there in case it is available. You could head over to ketocampdetox.com. Camp campus spelled with a K. ketocampdetox.com. There's a short video on there if you want to learn more about how toxins disrupt your health. And then there's an option to join this next group. If you don't join this group and you want to join a future group, I'm probably going to do the next one at the end of summer or early fall, so you would have to wait. And if you want to join this group, it's a small group, and there's two spots left. I would love to show you the way, KetoCampDetox.com. Okay, let's talk with Dr. Russell Kennedy. Dr. Russell Kennedy is the anxiety MD. He's a medical practitioner who holds a degree in neuroscience and is dedicated to assisting those with mental illness. In addition, he's the author of an incredible book called Anxiety Rx, a certified yoga instructor, a speaker with the National Speakers Bureau. For many years, he worked as a doctor during the day and a stand-up comedian at night. Appearing in comedy clubs all over the country, his expertise is anxiety because he too suffered from it for a very long time and wants to prevent others from going through what he did. He is well known as the Anxiety M.D., Here's Dr. Russell Kennedy. Dr. Russell Kennedy, welcome to the Keto Camp podcast. Thanks, man. I've been looking forward to talking with you. It's been we've had this on the books now for a while. We have. And before we hit record, my fiance was so excited to meet you because she was actually one who told me about your work. Her coach Angie Sanchez told her to follow you on Instagram and get your book Anxiety Rx, Our Anxiety Prescription, which is a great book. We'll get into today. And I remember we were on a road trip, we went to Orlando, so it's about a three and a half hour drive to go see a, a rock concert, actually, The Killers in concert. And we were driving back home and she had she's had a really tough year with anxiety and panic attacks, her mom being in the hospital. And we started playing your book, the audible version of your book. I fell in love with it, first of all, because you're super funny. <laughs> and I know that you're a Canadian, so it makes sense. And she was crying and she's so emotional. And I I loved your perspective and your work and your and unique approach to anxiety. So I want to just start there and just say thank you for what you've done for my fiance, Natasha. It's been so much and so meaningful to me. Thanks, man. I really love hearing that. Thank you. Let's talk about your story. Um, okay. Very inspirational, pain-to-purpose-to-promise story. You grew up with a father who had a lot of challenges. and you essentially faced a lot of challenges yourself. So if we could rewind and if you could share your story and the story of your father, I would love for my audience to hear that. Yeah, sure. I mean, the short version is my father had schizophrenia and
1: bipolar disorder. So they called it schizoaffective disorder. So we had a lot, my my father had a lot of trauma in his growing up environment. His own dad died when he was 10. And I, I think just watching him kind of disintegrate because from zero to 10, he was actually a pretty good dad. He was a great dad, actually. And But I could tell there was something not quite right about him. You know. And then when I got to be about 10, I have a younger brother who was about eight. You know, he took off. <laughs> we lived in Ontario, which is like, you know, like one of the middle provinces in Canada. And then he decided in a manic episode that he was going to hitchhike across ca- Canada, which is what he did. So he hitchhiked all the way to Victoria, British Columbia, which is where I live now. Which is the far west coast, which is just directly above Seattle, and that was really the first time I was about ten, and I was like, "What the hell is going on with my father?" Like, just, just because he'd been such a great dad, like just teaching me how to ride a bike and hit a ball, and he was an award-winning baseball coach in in uh, Ontario, and and you know, just to see him kind of crumple, and then you know, he'd go back to normal. By the time I was like ten to about fourteen years old, he'd be back to normal again after he got out of the mental hospital or whatever. But about fourteen to sixteen, he started just to deteriorate. Like and and he committed suicide when he was uh, fifty-two and I was twenty-six. So for about from the time I was ten till I was at twenty-six, so sixteen years, he just kind of went deeper and deeper and deeper into his disease. And I got paranoid that I was going to develop the same kind of thing because I knew that there is some sort of heritable component, some genetic component to schizophrenia, and I was completely, you know, afraid that I was going to go down the same path as he did because I saw him go through some pretty horrendous, horrendous experiences, you know, being naked on the floor in a mental hospital, like your proverbial rubber room, and all that kind of stuff that you know a teenage boy should, you know, shouldn't have seen. But it is one of those things. And and I think it did help focus me. And I think one of the reasons I became a medical doctor was because I felt so impotent watching him just decline and decline and decline that I wanted to have some power over illness. And little did I know <laughs> that that medicine doesn't have a tremendous power over illness. Mostly we, we kind of treat symptoms and that kind of thing too. Now... I love medical doctors. I think medical doctors are, do a wonderful job within their lane. But with chronic disease and that kind of stuff, they're, they're not as good. We're, we're trained in a very pharmaceutical model in a lot of ways. And pharmaceuticals don't work for everything. And the other side of pharmaceuticals is they give us a false sense that what we're doing is actually treating the root cause of the illness as opposed to just managing the symptoms. And really the root cause of illness I see with a lot of my patients is You know, old unresolved trauma typically from childhood. Not always. There's not, it is, everything is always about trauma. But in the population of people that I see with chronic anxiety, it absolutely is about childhood trauma.
0: So you also had your own challenges, didn't you? Because obviously you had your father who took his life and seeing what you saw as a teenager and then as a young adult. Could be challenging for anybody. So you actually ended up specializing in the challenges that you faced. Isn't that true?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm not a psychologist. I wasn't trained as a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. So I'm a medical doctor. I was trained as a medical doctor. So I used to work in in all kind of facets of medicine. I delivered babies. I worked in emergency. You know, I I you know worked in critical care. There's a lot of stuff that I did that weren't really mentally focused, but just about everybody I saw in my clinic had some aspect of anxiety to them. Like you come in with an STD, you're pretty anxious. You know. you come in with like chronic headaches you've had for a month, you're pretty anxious as to what, what's going on. If I order a CT or an MRI or an ultrasound on something that I'm kind of concerned about, people are pretty anxious about what the results are gonna come back as. you know. So for me, a lot of my anxiety started in med school. My father had committed suicide nine months earlier, and there I was, you know, three thousand miles away, sitting in med school. So I got into medicine to try and help people, and I really wasn't feeling like I was helping them physiologically. I was helping them psychologically. And I remember one of—I remember one of my uh, gastroenterology residents. I still remember his name, Dr. Gordon Beerbrier. So if you're listening to this, Gordon, he was one of my favorite attending physicians uh, or um, supervising physicians. And he's we were on gastroenterology, and he says, "You know, Russ, these are amazing notes. These are fantastic notes for psychiatry." You know, and we're on gastroenterology, we're on it. so it's like I went into the you know the personal history and all that kind of stuff, which medical doctors don't do, and I think that's a big that's a big issue is we don't go into, hey, what happened to you when you were younger? Why are you showing up with uh, rheumatoid arthritis at 38 years old instead of 78 years old? So. Maybe a bit of a rambling answer there, but it was kind of like, that's where my anxiety started. I mean, I've always had it. I remember, you know, being 15 or 16 and having it. But med school was when it really got fired into into orbit. Like, really, really got really uncomfortable for me. And I'm pretty amazed I actually made it through med school. But,
0: you know, here I am. Well, I mean, that should be inspiring to others. Because I know that when you were in elementary school, you were like a C- student. I was too. And you actually ended up becoming the attending physician for one of your teachers, now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was really. Funny. How was that conversation? Uh, I was, I was
1: working at Merge. I was working at Merge, and one of my teachers, who I was actually in his home room, he came in. He was, you know, in his eighties at that time, and I came in and said, "Hey, Mister," and, and I, I greeted him by his name and stuff uh i was one of of your students and he goes i remember you you know uh, rusty and it's like yeah and i said and i'm your and i'm your doctor i'm your and my grades were like and you could see his face kind of like you went to medical school like you you with a solid c minus average made it through medical school so anyway we had a bit of a laugh about that and that kind of stuff but um yeah, it was a very interesting. There's a couple of stories that I've had. One was when my grade 7 bully came in to see me as a patient. That was another episode. Yeah. So I remember remember just walking into the room and just say, he says, "Hey, I know you." And I said, "Hey, I know you too. You made my life a living hell from, you know, from 13 to 14 years old." And then he became my patient and uh, you know, I realized here's one of the one of the big lessons I learned in medicine was was I realized that I had it tough with my dad, but this guy had it way harder. You know, physical, emotional, sexual abuse. His sister was murdered. There was all these things that happened. So it really it really gave me a look at the other side of what what bullying was really all about because this kid was, was clearly in a lot of trauma at home, a lot. And he just took it out, you know, on, on the only place that he could. And I think that's what happens with bullies is I think they're, that they're all traumatized people like nobody goes and goes after someone else tries to hurt them on purpose. I think that, you know, it's a reaction to your life circumstance. So that was a really big lesson for me as a medical doctor when I saw my grade seven bully and he was in such bad shape and such, he suffered so much because as I, as he became my patient, I learned more and more and more about what his childhood was like. And it was like, man, I thought I had it hard. And that's the, that brings up the other topic about, you know, uh, comparing traumas, you know, like you can't compare traumas. I think you know, we are born with a certain, we're, I don't think we're born anxious. I don't think there's a gene for anxiety. People ask me that a lot. Uh, I don't think there's a gene for anxiety, but I think our temperament is kind of genetically expressed. So I'm a very sensitive person. My brother is not so sensitive and I wound up getting the anxiety and my brother's more like happy-go-lucky, whatever happens. He's uh, more stoic. You know? So he's so, like a stoic.
0: Yeah, He's more I, I
1: Absolutely. My brother is very stoic. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like I it's like that too. So, so it's like uh I, I always do this impression of my brother, it's like, oh Jesus Christ, Russ, we're always waiting for you. We're always waiting for you. So, cause I've got to get everything right before I go to the house. And he's like, But the funny part about that, I'm kind of got pressure of speech a little bit today, but the funny part about that is we played on the same baseball team. We were only like 16 months apart. And uh, if there was a practice at six PM, I would get there at six oh five and my brother would get there at like five fifteen, you know? So it's really funny how easygoing he was, but he had to be on time for everything, like rigid on time. You'd think it'd be reversed, but so yeah, my family of origin was was interesting. This very
0: for. interesting, yeah. I'm very similar to your brother because I'm I'm also stoic, but I also want to be on time too. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think that's a valuable lesson with the bully that you had, and I had bullies too. But we fast forward to now. Now there's social media bullies, and especially educators like yourself, educators like myself naturally, as we grow, these bullies will come out. And I see them all the time. I, I get these comments that are hateful. I'm sure you do too. When it started to happen on social media, what was your initial response? And how do you handle those sort of comments that you get the hateful comments?
1: Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Because I think what happens is, you know, I kind of see them as hurt children. You know, it's just like when, when my, my wife Cynthia is a somatic trauma therapist. So the, the, the conversations that we have around the house are, are quite interesting. But I remember Cynthia and I have a picture of each other when we're about eight years old, right? So what I do with Cynthia was when we get in a fight, which isn't often, but you know, sometimes we get into, into scraps about different things. And uh, I just look at that picture or I imagine that picture because that's who I'm dealing with. Like I'm dealing with the nine-year-old version of Cynthia, right? And she's dealing with the eight-year-old version of me. And I think that's what a lot of like on social media, a lot of these people regress into children. And then they get angry and they can't there is no prefrontal cortex. There is no place where they kind of go, hey, this is probably not the best thing to do, which is typically what happens when we're children is we don't have this evolved prefrontal cortex that says, hey, don't do that. <laughs> That's probably not a good thing to do, right? So I think it's really important to see those people as as wounded. Plus, you know, if we're in the the mental health space or the physical health space, we're helping people and a lot of these people didn't have parents that were really overly helpful. So often what they'll do is they'll project the negative aspects of their own parents or lack of those parents onto us. So I try, I try and see it that way. Sometimes I get my my feelings get a little hurt, because like I said, I am sensitive, but I'm learning how to see it more and more that it's just, you know, a hurt person on the end. You know, a lot of people expect, they read my book, they see all the five-star reviews and all that kind of stuff, and they think that they're going to heal their anxiety by reading the book. And I think that it provides you with a great framework and great structure, but you have to do the work. And the, the problem with that is that your ego, your protective ego is so powerful that it will keep you locked in anxiety. And we can talk about this you know, as, as we go along, but, but that's our biggest enemy in healing anxiety is this overprotective ego that doesn't want to let us go back and, and experience the same pain that we used to. But unless we, like I was saying to, to, to your, your girlfriend, is that unless we go back and feel it, we can't really bring it up to the surface to a place that we can start changing it. And and it will always kind of keep us a prisoner if, if we're, we're sort of locked in those subcortical you know, below the cortex, below the thinking mind, we're locked in those subcortical programs. We can't change them unless we use feeling to change them. All the thinking in the world, all the all the talk therapy in the world, isn't going to change those subcortical programs. Not that subcortical, or the the, the um, not that talk therapy doesn't help. It certainly does. It's just a matter of if you want the full picture, if you really want to heal, you've got to get the subcortical programs as well, the unconscious programs as well as the conscious ones.
0: I would love you for you to dive a little bit deeper into that and maybe explain how when we're born into this world, essentially those first few years, first five to seven years, we're kind of getting these downloads into the subconscious mind. And then now we're 30 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old, and kind of running on autopilot. And we have these, this paradigm that's running the show that has been developed by our environment. And we know we should do better. I know that the new year's here and I should eat better and eat clean, yet... I don't. Um, So there's something going on subconsciously. How does that develop over those first few years of our life? And then what do you mean exactly by you have to feel it? You can't just think it or talk it out.
1: Okay. So I think you know we're not born with a blank slate. I think that we're born with certain... Mark Willen is a friend of mine. He wrote a book called um, It Didn't Start With You about inherited family trauma. I do see as a family doctor, when I practice as family doctor, I did see traumas and patterns go through families. And I think there is some sort of unconscious patterning that's put into all of us. Now, I think when we're born, I think that's quite flexible. And I was saying earlier on about being sensitive. When you're sensitive, you incorporate things at a much deeper level, I think. Things don't sort of, water off a duck's back to you so much. So when you get yelled at as a child, some children can sort of deal with that on some level. Other children take it so personally that it starts to affect them and it starts to become part of who they are. And part of this, what I call subcortical structures, the, the, the structures like the amygdala and you know to some extent the hippocampus, like the stuff that just encodes stuff in our environment that we're not even cognitively aware of. So we start developing this certain way of interacting with the world. And if you grow up in a, in a caring, loving, sensitive, attuned, attached environment, you're probably going to grow up into something that assimilates your true self, you know, your true, caring, loving self. Now, if you grow up in an environment and you're sensitive where there's a lot of trauma, you're going to grow up into more of a reactive self. And a lot of those reactive programs are put into us at a very young age below the level of thinking, below the level of the cortex, and they become automatic. And it becomes a way that we start looking at the world. And a lot of people with anxiety begin looking at the world as victims, including myself. And this is some of the things that that people get upset about when I say this. But when you adopt a victim mentality, you start adopting a victim physiology as well. So you will start making more epinephrine, making more cortisol, you know, so, and it's been shown that if you lean into what scares you, you will actually start secreting dopamine from the ventral tegmental area, the mesolimbic dopamine system. And I don't want to get too technical. And uh, you will start creating chemicals that allow you, that will sort of come up and support you and say, hey, you know, if I want to go and ask that girl out and you go over and do it, your brain will give you the chemicals you need to do that. Now, if you go over and you look at this girl and you go, oh, I can't, she's way out of my league. Like, I, you know, there's just no way. I'm just, and you will start secreting epinephrine and cortisol, which will reaffirm that thing. So whatever you, and I heard you say in, in one of your podcasts too, like whatever you focus on, you get more of essentially, right? So that's, so if you focus on victim, which is what happens to us as children, we, we get turned into victims because the stuff that happens to us, we don't have a lot of agency in. So we develop this victim mentality, which gives us this victim physiology, which makes anxiety very, very difficult to get out of because it becomes this unconscious, unseen way of seeing the world. So Bissell van der Kolk, I remember doing in *The Body Keeps the Score*, has this uh, study that he did with kids who were traumatized and kids that weren't, and he showed them these sort of non-specific pictures, like two kids going walking on the beach with their parent or whatever. And the kids who were traumatized would say, okay, there's going to be a, big, a big, big wave that comes in and washes them out to sea. And the kids that weren't traumatized said, oh, what a lovely day, the sun's coming up. So it just shows you how this skews the framework of your life and how you see things. You know, I see it, I call it, you know, seeing the world through red colored glasses because you see the world in a sort of a, a very protective, reactive way, as opposed to a very open, emotionally stable kind of way. So, and it becomes a framework. And that's what I mean. That's why it's so hard to heal anxiety in so many ways unless we go in and go under the hood and get into those subcortical structures, which respond to feeling, by the way. Like feeling is what really helps change those subcortical structures uh, as opposed to thinking. You can change your thinking and it will help without a doubt. I take a lot of flack by people saying, oh, you hate CBT and you hate cognitive therapies. I don't. I think that they're very, very helpful. I just don't think they're going to heal you because they don't actually go into those subcortical structures that aren't actually affected by language because most of the emotional parts of our brain, especially when we're younger, don't have language. They weren't designed with language. The amygdala doesn't have language. It doesn't understand language. It understands feeling. And if the amygdala is a point where a lot of your anxiety comes from, which there's some theories that say that. I'm not sure if I believe all of them, but if we can change the reaction of the amygdala, we can actually calm some of those, those, you know, these old programs down so that you actually your rationality can come in and take over for you. But unless you know how to do that, unless you become aware of it and you can see it coming, you can't really change it. And you know, 90 or most of our, our brain development, 80% of our brain development occurs before five years old. So whatever environment you were exposed to under five years old is going to affect these subcortical structures and affect the view that you have of life in general.
0: Hey, Keto Camper, it is time to get your shift together. What do I mean? Sugar Shift is a unique probiotic designed as a working system to convert the sugars, glucose, and fructose in your gut to the free radical scavenger, manitol which also feeds a healthy gut microbiome, supports the mitochondria, and by the way, it increases the production of butyrate, which helps protect the gut lining and is one of the main ketone bodies. You heard of it, beta-hydroxybutyrate. This is one of my favorite formulas. It's an eight-strain formula built as a working system to provide specific gut functions, and it's unique in its probiotic formulation. One of my favorite things about this product is that it breaks down and detoxifies glyphosate. The product also includes strains that has been shown to improve muscle mass and support changes in body mass. I've used it with several of my Keto Camp Academy students and they have reported to me it has helped them with their sugar cravings, it helped them with their transition from sugar burner to fat burner, helps to keep them in ketosis and take the results to another level, helps when they hit a plateau, improves digestion... In a recent study, BiotiQuest, the company that makes SugarShift, showed huge improvements in blood sugar reduction, A1C reduction, also reducing LPS, which is an endotoxin that can create inflammation in your body. If you'd like to get your hands on a bottle of SugarShift from BiotiQuest, head to BiotiQuest.com, which is spelled B-I-O-T-I-Q-U-E-S-T. And then put the coupon code camp K A M P one zero at checkout, and also check out their other products as well. We'll drop links down below with the coupon code in the podcast notes. Uh, so this is interesting because I was one of those people who were seeing seeing the negative out of everything, right? Uh, my sto- my backstory, just in a nutshell, is I grew up in a very toxic environment. My parents were great; they were divorced, but. My mom worked three jobs, so I hung out with the wrong crowd. So that environment was toxic and naturally that was my thoughts and feelings and actions were a result of what was around me. So I ate unhealthy food, I thought unhealthy thoughts, I did unhealthy things like video game addiction, drug addiction, I was depressed, suicidal, I was rock bottom, uh, 2008, 24 years old looking for ways to end my life and then thinking about my mom and stopping myself. And, and then I got into uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer's work. Are you familiar? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, for sure. Of course yeah. you are. <laughs> yeah. And he, he said something that rattled my world. He kind of like took my head off of my body, flipped it, rattled it, and put it back on. And my life was never the same. He said, if other people were the result of your problems, you would have to hire a psychiatrist for the rest of the world in order for you to get better. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. Yeah. I've been a victim and I've been blaming other people. And it's so easy. It, it was so easy for me because you release yourself of responsibility. But then I took responsibility and I started to eat better and, and move my body. It started with my thoughts. And then eventually... You it might, started with, think,
1: you might you, you think it started okay, with your yeah, thoughts. You co- yeah, you tell me what happened. Okay. Well, wanna, yeah, no, Keep going. Keep going. I I, I want to hear the rest of this.
0: So... I thought that it started with my thoughts, no pun intended there. And I started to just become aware of my thoughts and I started to choose better thoughts. and then eventually I got into gratitude a couple of years later. And then when I got into gratitude is where I started to consciously feel grateful and and be aware of feelings. Uh, and then, you know, it was just a matter of me being really consistent with changing my environment, reading more books and kind of in, in brain tattooing this information. So um, now, um that was fourteen years ago. I'm the person who sees a rainy day. I'm like, man, I love the rain. It's so beautiful. I'm the person who sees a hundred degree, degree day, and I'm like, the sun is so great, vitamin D. Like, I'm always seeing the greatness and the gratitude versus the red glasses that you referred to earlier. So, you tell me what what happened with me. Well, often I think
1: this is what I think the the biggest sort of um, misconception I think that people have. People think that I like I feel the I think these negative thoughts, therefore I feel negative. You know, it's actually. In my world, and then this is this is what I, I found on LSD. So I, you know, we can talk about this a little bit too. Is in my world, I find that I my body felt a certain way, and my brain, which is just a, a meaning making, make sense machine, through a process called interoception, your brain is always reading your body. So if there's this old trauma for me, it's in my solar plexus, and I know as a medical doctor, this starts to sound pretty woo, but um, I like woo, yeah. Yeah, so so there's this trauma that's still stuck in my body from my dad. It's in my it's in my solar plexus, and my body feels a certain way every time I get "quote unquote" anxious. And what happens is your your brain reads your body, and it in me it read this alarm in my body. So the mind, being a meaning making, makes sense machine, goes, "Okay, what do you have to be alarmed about? Well, you're not going to make it through med school. You're not smart enough. There's no way you know anyone's going to." have you you know you can't stay in a relationship all so your body actually creates your thoughts more than your thoughts create your body. Now it's both it's both it's absolutely both without a doubt without a doubt. but and this is what I mean about therapy. if you're only fixing the thoughts and the problem is actually this old trauma that's stored in your body, you're, not, you're only fixing half of the problem. So, And this is what we see borne out in a lot of the research studies that say, look, people go through CBT and they do feel considerably better for like three to six months. But a year later, they're kind of back to the same level of anxiety that they were prior to going into the program in the first place. Now, this is why I love therapies like um, somatic experiencing and internal family systems and to some extent psychedelics because they start changing that underlying wiring because it's your body, it's those subcortical structures, the the structures below the level of the the thinking mind that run your body and vice versa. And they're communicating with each other all the time. So if your body is in a calm, reactive, uh, unreactive state, your mind is gonna be like, okay, I'm clear, I can think. But if your body is in this reactive state and a lot of people with old traumas that haven't been resolved, emotional, physical, sexual abuse, loss abandonment rejection having to mature too early having to become the man or the woman of the house too soon that's alarming for a child and basically what we do is we stuff that into our unconscious and in in the body that keeps the score bessel van der koek's work the body is a representation of the unconscious mind so i can use the body to track back to reverse engineer your trauma into your unconscious mind, into those subcortical structures, and I can start using feeling to move those structures around and change those underlying subcortical substrates that are creating these negative thoughts in the first place. Because I think what we're doing mostly in North America is we're believing, hey, if I could fix the thoughts, I'd be better. And that's true to some extent. And the little analogy that I draw is like, you're kind of in a rowboat. Right, and there's a hole in the bottom of the boat, and the boat's filling up with water. Now, you can bail water out of that boat, and it's going to make you feel a little better because you're dropping the level of of that water. And that's kind of like doing talk therapy. But unless you go under there, unless you seal that hole in the hull of the boat, which is the old alarm that's stuck in your body from old trauma that was never resolved, you're never actually going to be free of anxiety. So that's kind of what I think. So I think a lot of people believe that anxiety is a disorder of the mind. And this is you know almost like heresy when you come up and say this. It's like, I believe that anxiety has much more to do with old trauma that's still stored in your body, that's reflected by your mind, rather than the, your mind creating all this negativity. But because we talk to each other in words, and we talk to ourselves in words, we start thinking that the, that the mind and the words are, are how we communicate. And we really have, have moved away from the body. We've really moved away from this sense of, Connection to our bodies as a focus of health. It's all about thinking better, you know. You know, turn that frown upside down, like you know, get a get a better mindset. And I always say, like, why not get a better body set as well as as a good mindset too? And with your nutrition stuff and all, this is this falls into place with that. So it's really about for me when I want to heal someone's anxiety, is I have to do I have to fix their thoughts as well, but I have to start by hooking into their body, by creating that place of safety in their body so that their mind isn't on its heels all the time trying to figure out why am I in danger, why am I, because the mind is brilliant, like the mind is amazing. And and what I see with a lot of my anxiety people is they're very, very smart. So they're they're able to come up with these, these incredibly complex, you know, worrisome scenarios of the future because they're so smart. But the thing is, I think we really have to start looking at a body-based focus as well as a mind-based focus when we're coming to the full person, to the full picture, to treat this disorder that we call
0: anxiety. So good, I, I love that, and I would love for you to give some examples of how we, you know, tap into that those subconscious trapped emotions and change our physiology. I know that Tony Robbins talks a lot about that. We just did; me and Natasha just did his "Unleash the Power Within," and he's all about changing your physiology. That that was an incredible workshop. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Tony's work, but also some of the tips that you do that we can do at home to change our physiology, change our body, work on this body set in combination with the mindset.
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, a lot of it, and this sounds pretty cliche, but a lot of it is breath, you know, just really focusing on your breath because as soon as you focus on your breath, it'll naturally slow down. And I think the mind runs us so quickly. That the body has no choice but to just breathe quickly, breathe quickly, and over the course of time, what happens is that our chest starts to to shrink down because we're breathing so shallowly up in our chest. And when we shrink our chest down like that, it sends a message up to our brainstem that hey, we must be in trouble because we're breathing. Sh-. It's like being trapped behind a tree, and we know there's a predator on the other side of the tree. So it's like we just like from a physiological point of view we start, our breathing goes really shallow. We start just getting really, really still. You know, and if you look at what heals people with anxiety is actually breathing deeper and moving. But our physiology, and this is the thing with, with, with kids with trauma, your physiology goes into freeze. And this is, you know, part of this is polyvagal theory and all that kind of thing, dorsal vagal shut down. But it's basically the same kind of idea as when a mouse or a small animal is trapped and there's no escape they just feign death so their heart rate drops their respiratory rate drops everything drops down in order that the predator may think they're dead so I'm not going to I'm not going to chase them anymore now that that's in us physiologically but we do this kind of drop to the ground physiology when we're in anxiety when we're in a deep deep anxiety so we'll go into this sympathetic this this fight or flight, and it will go higher and higher and higher and higher. And then it just has a a fuse, a shut off that goes, nope, we're going to drop this right down into dorsal vagal shutdown, or the whole body shuts down. Then we're susceptible to depression and that kind of thing too, because we've shut everything down. So it's a matter of how can you, Daniel Siegel, Dr. Dan Siegel talks about this window of tolerance. So we can be activated You know, we can be activated. We can, you know, uh, if our kid runs towards the street, it can activate us to move, to go and grab them and say, hey, don't do that. And then once we do that, we can come right back down into sort of a normal kind of parasympathetic rest and digest. Kids sitting beside me on the porch, we're doing fine. Now, for people with anxiety, if their kid runs out into the street, it may take them 60 to 90 to 120 minutes before their heart rate goes down because we're so used to being in this hypervigilant physiological state. And we don't ever really learn that it's okay to feel safe. So what you're saying about what can we do at home? There's something called yoga nidra, which uh, Andrew Huberman calls non-sleep deep rest. He's coined that term, non-sleep deep rest. And there's recordings on YouTube of yoga nidra. And basically what it it is kind of like a form of hypnosis where, you go into sort of a, a breathing place for your breathing, and then you start focusing on different parts of your body. And from a neuroscientific point of view, basically what we're doing is we're starting to involve the prefrontal cortex, the premotor cortex, and then the somatosensory cortex, which is the part of us that moves, right? But we're not necessarily moving, we're just putting our attention into these parts, like right wrist, you know, left wrist, you know, that kind of thing. So it creates this place where we can actually rest and be safe in that resting. And so the more we can relax and, and relax the body and be aware that our body is relaxed. And here's here's the big hook in that is that if you had trauma as a child, and this is chapter 62 in my book, it's not safe to feel safe. So for me, growing up, my dad would go along fine for like nine to 12 months, and I'd be like, hey, you know, maybe he's back to normal again and stuff. And then he would collapse again. So what I learned over the course of time after four or five of those episodes was, look, it's not safe to let your guard down. It's not safe to feel safe. And that little topic is something that I I get sort of messages all the time about, how do I feel safe, feeling safe? And it's basically just practice. Yoga Nidra is one of them. Um, Yoga is another way. You know, Tai Chi is another way. It's basically really looking around, connecting your mind and your body, Movement's really important because I also believe that anxiety is a real disconnection of our mind from our body. So the more we can move and move in a way that we are, you know, fully aware of, you know, just like as you move your hands, you know, just being really intimately aware of of how this this movement in your hands goes, you know, because that pulls us in a premotor area, which is just behind the prefrontal cortex. It pulls us into somatosensory, and what it does is it pulls us into the present moment. And that's probably the biggest key out of everything is pulling yourself into the present moment because worry is always about the future and trauma is always about the past. So if you can pull yourself into the present moment and practice being there, that's when you start getting ahead of this. But this is what I was saying earlier: when you start feeling safe, there's an alarm bell that goes off that says, Hey, you know, your dad's gonna get drunk again. Not me, but but I'm saying for 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 people, your dad's gonna abuse you again. You know, there's this sense that that it's not safe to be safe and that overprotected ego is in there. So that's why it's so hard to heal from anxiety because when it's not safe to feel safe and feeling safe is what you need to heal, how are you going to resolve that? And it's mostly just practice and awareness and just feeling like, okay, I'm going to make the intention that I'm just going to allow myself. And this is like yoga Nidra and that kind of thing is very helpful because For that 20 minutes or 30 minutes that you do yoga nidra or listen to a meditation or whatever, and you tell yourself beforehand, I am going to take this next 20 or 30 minutes and I am going to feel safe. Make the intention because your subconscious mind loves intentions. Because if you don't give it a pathway, it will take off. In a bunch of different directions so you give it a pathway that says for the next 30 minutes i'm going to lie here on my bed i'm going to look around i'm going to see that i'm perfectly safe and i'm going to lie here for 30 minutes and allow myself to feel safe and know that when i feel safe maybe this this uh you know panicky feeling is going to come up but i can stay with it and breathe through it and this is where practice comes in because again we're trying to change those subcortical structures your mind knows that it's not good to worry but the subcortical structures have have thought that that worry has kept you safe since you've been six years old. So why wouldn't you bring that back in? This is all sort of part and parcel of the whole thing is like, what can you do at home? Breathing exercises, yoga nidra, yoga, like movement, anything that induces movement, exercise is helpful. Yeah, if you look at the somatosensory strip in, in your brain, so much of your brain is devoted to your hands and your face right? So I do this thing with people and I get them to put cross their wrists across the midline and rub your right cheek with your left fingers and your left cheek with your right fingers. Now it looks really creepy, right? It does. Yes. Yeah. Don't do this at, you know, don't do this at the CVS, <laughs> but, 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 but it brings you, like I said, because your, your somatosensory strip is so, so much of it is, is devoted to your hands and your face. When you touch your hands to your face, It brings you into the present moment. And I think this is one of the reasons why tapping. People find tapping so helpful too. I'm not sure if tapping has any magical qualities. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But what I every time I see tapping, I always think, okay, well, somatosensory cortex, you know. And and I think it's helpful. I, I really do think tapping is helpful. And I think one of the reasons why is it brings you into the present moment, right? It brings you and then in that present moment, then you can start making affirmation. Not that I'm a huge fan of affirmations, but you can start making these affirmations in the present moment. If you're stuck in the future, if you're stuck in future worry and you start making affirmations, they have no resonance whatsoever. And if you're stuck in your old trauma, they have no resonance. The only way we can change in the present moment. So when you bring yourself into the present moment, tapping, rubbing your face, whatever, you're in the right ballpark to start changing those subcortical structures that are ruling your life and making you look at the world as a victim. Because that's really what it comes down to is that when you are suffering from anxiety, and I get a lot of, I wouldn't say hate mail, but a lot of people that don't like hearing this, but it's basically, you know, you're a victim. And I was a victim for a long time. And I still can fall into that victim hole every once in a while. But it's just realized that I said about the physiology when you lean into something, when you go at what scares you, you will start creating endogenous opiates like your own, your brain's natural morphine from periaqueductal gray in your brainstem, stem, you'll start secreting dopamine, which is like, hey, you're on the right track. Like, Keep going for this. But if you see life as a victim, you're going to create cortisol and epinephrine, which is going to put you on your heels. And it's going to make you think, hey, there must be something to be scared of here because I'm waiting. And I think Mel Robbins talks about that too in her book. I think it's the five second rule. It's like when you wait, when you hesitate, your brain starts saying, okay, we're, we're hesitating. So there must be something to be afraid of. That's the physiological explanation as to why we, because we start creating epinephrine and cortisol, which is basically reminds our brain like, oh, we're scared. We're scared. So what am I scared of? Well, I'm not going to go do the thing that I wanted to do because clearly I'm scared. Clearly my brain is telling me not to do this when actually you got to feel it to heal it and you got to go through it. Now I'm not saying, you know, if you're, if you have a phobia of snakes, that you're going to go to a, grab a snake and, and throw it in your own face. But there is this thing where we sort of slowly get into the, into the sensation of something. And this is how I treat people with anxiety is I find the alarm in their body. So they'll say, I'm really, I'm really afraid of flying. It's like, okay, I'll put them in a chair, get them to breathe. Imagine walking on the flight, imagine sitting down, where do you feel that in your body? It's like, oh, I feel this real tightness in my throat. It's like, okay, let's really dive into that. Does it have a temperature? It's like, yeah, it's kind of cool. And is there any other sensation with it? Squeezing. So it's this cool squeezing sensation in your throat. Is it an ache or a pain or a pressure? It's a pressure. So I will, I will drill down into this, and I will have like at the end of it, it's in my throat. It's a squeezing. It radiates into the back of my neck. It's cool. It's sharp. You know, it feels irregular. You know, I really drill down into it because I really do believe that I can reverse engineer that alarm sensation to be able to access the unconscious that actually encoded that alarm in the first place. And once I get into that same room with the place that the the alarm is sourced, then we can really start moving the root cause of the anxiety as opposed to just trying to fix the the situation of it around, like breathing better or thinking better or whatever. Like we really want to get in there and feel it. And, you know, Bessel van der Kolk talks about that and the body keeps a score as well. The body is a representation of the unconscious mind. So I can use your body, where you feel your alarm in your body, I can use that as a way of tracking back into the place where this alarm system is actually stored and became stored in you probably since you were a child.
0: That's it. You know, you're brilliantly explaining the body's check engine light and the the symptoms that are manifesting, but it could be far removed from the actual cause. And while there is a time and place for these short-term tools that you mentioned, getting yourself in the present moment, actually, that's why I've seen ice baths work a lot really well with people because it puts them in that present moment. My fiance Natasha started doing rock climbing and she says it's been great for anxiety and makes so much sense because it puts her in the present moment. right? And she does it every week now and she would never have thought she would be doing that. But I love the way you're explaining this because it's essentially the difference between chasing symptoms and masking symptoms, covering up the check engine light and just keep driving that car versus pulling the car over, opening up the hood and seeing why is the check engine light on? Is that an accurate assessment?
1: Yeah, I would say that uh, I'm. We're really looking at at going at the root cause of of your anxiety or your eating disorder or your, you know, personality disorder, which is are these subcortical uh, influences that were put into you probably before you were ten years old. So unless we change those or at least go in there and show you that the, there's a, a place to expand within them, so that they're not fixed. Then we can actually do something. And then and then people gain confidence. Like people tell me all the time, it's like, you know, I get alarmed now, but I don't, and this is true for me too. I get alarmed now, but I don't give it that much credibility anymore. Because what people would do before is they would get alarmed. They'd feel it in their throat or their heart or their solar plexus like me. And then compulsively, their mind would have to make sense of that alarm by creating all these scary thoughts. Which of course, as soon as we believe the scary thoughts, make the alarm so much worse. Which of course make the scary thoughts so much worse. So you get in this alarm anxiety cycle. So what people are doing, and what I do now, is that I feel the alarm. It's like, oh, okay, alarm. There you are. Uh, I put my. It's usually my solar plexus. So I put my hand over it. I breathe into it, and that kind of thing. And here's where it gets really woo. It's like I actually believe that that alarm is my younger self asking for my attention. So, so often what we do with pain is we push it away and we push it away. And my little story that I tell people is if you were out at a grocery store and a child lost their parents and they're crying and they're holding up their hands like for you to pick them up because they need to be... Of course you would pick them up, right? But we won't do that for ourselves. So we wind up pushing that child away and pushing it down deeper into the unconscious, deeper into those subcortical structures. So it has to get louder because that the alarm is really your younger self asking for the love, attention, protection, and care that it didn't get when you were a child. So to heal from your anxiety, not to get too woo about this, because I do have a degree in neuroscience, you have to find that child. And we find that child by localizing the alarm in your body. A lot of people don't even think to look in their body because their mind is moving at a thousand miles an hour. They have so many thoughts. And this is what I tell people all the time. It's like when you're anxious, I like to call it alarmed, When you're alarmed, look in your body. Where is it in your body? Because your mind will distract you forever. And a lot of people I see are like in their 60s and 70s and they go, this is the first time I've actually (laughs) looked at my anxiety in my body. I've always thought that it was my mind that was doing it. And as I was saying earlier, it's just the mind reflecting how the body feels like I said, is a meaning making make sense machine. So if you have this alarm in your system that's been there since you've been five years old, because you got hit by your dad or whatever, your mind is going to react to that. And it's going to do it over and over and over and over again. And it's going to become the go-to, which is going to make you a victim. And it's going to just keep you know, perpetuating that same old program over and over. So I have people in their, like, their early 70s that. say, I've never thought to look for my anxiety in my body, like ever. And they will find it, you know, they'll say it's in my solar plexus, it's in my gut, it's in my shoulders. You know, one of the things that I I really notice with people is the kids that had to grow up too soon, you know, the kids who had to kind of become the the mom or the dad of the house too soon, usually the oldest in the family, something happens to the parents or whatever, and they take on this child, this, this, this role that's too big for them, but they do it you know, cause they're smart and whatever. And so often I will see those people carry their alarm across their shoulders. Not always, but these are just like, after dealing with so many people with anxiety, I get little things that I see on regular, like women who grew up with highly narcissistic mothers or a mother who was a real mismatch for them. You know, they, they knew their mother loved them, but they didn't quite, you know, mesh together. They feel it in their throat because they always wanted to say, look, I love you. I, I want you to care for me. And it's stuck in their throat. And, you know, I see these patterns over and over again. And I realize, you know, here's my, here's my training in medicine. I've got an MD in medicine. I've got a degree in neuroscience. I've got a background in neuro, neurodevelopmental psychology because I believe a lot of it starts in childhood. So I see a lot of these patterns forming in childhood that form these really distinct patterns in adulthood. And I can track them down and say to people, it's like, well, you know, did you have a narcissistic mother? And they're like, well, how did you know that? It's like, well, your alarm's in your throat, which is, you know, kind of like 80%. That's what happens. Maybe not 80%. But it just gives me an idea after doing this so many times that there is a different way of looking at anxiety as an issue of the body and the mind, rather than just an issue of the mind, rather than just a DSM-3, DSM-4, DSM-5 issue of the mind.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that you're putting it all together and it makes complete sense to me. And it it makes me kind of look back at my journey because part of that journey that I didn't mention in regards to some of the symptoms I dealt with was severe like claustrophobia to the point where I would go into an elevator and I would just start to sweat and my heart would raise social anxiety where I would be checking out at a grocery store and I'd be like so nervous about people looking at me, being at a party and then people started to crowd me and I would get so claustrophobic and run out of there. That was part, this is like 10 years ago. And what I'm attempting to do here is I hear you speak and kind of look and think about my journey is, you know I'm kind of like an unconscious competent in this area because I no longer deal with any of that. But of course, I also had heavy metal poisoning and I had silver fillings in my mouth. I got those removed. I also had mold exposure. So I had a lot of chemical stress, but I'm still trying to kind of piece it together Based off of what I shared, I mean, how was I able to do it? Because I am not dealing with that now. I feel pretty good. I don't get those attacks, but I never really went, I never felt like I really went deep into these trapped emotions. And maybe I still need to go there myself.
1: Maybe, maybe not. You know, like it brings up a really good point is that how much environmental stress or, you know, physiological stress? So if you don't have great insulin. Balance, a great blood sugar balance. Your blood sugar so goes a, up. A, a hormonal aspect, rate, of or it. a hormonal aspect, or you know, HPA access issue. You know, that is gonna raise your sensation of anxiety and fear. And once you fix those things, it may have dropped down below a level that maybe some of your old traumas don't show up. You know, so there's a whole bunch of reasons behind this kind of thing. So so people say, oh. Um, you know if I once I fix my my sugar i'll be I'll be fine and a lot of people are are quite a bit better but it depends on you know how much trauma you had as a child how much of it you still think is in there how much of it is affecting you so are you saying that you know you don't get claustrophobic at all anymore
0: I don't okay has I haven't been in a few years but I haven't really been put in like a really severe situation. Um, so I haven't really tested it, but no, it hasn't come up in a few years. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, it's a testament to to
1: fixing the things that you can in your, in, in your situation, like getting rid of the mold, getting rid of the silver fillings, getting rid of the stuff that, that we know is going to aggravate your system. Now, I typically see people who've had pretty significant traumas, emotional, physical, sexual traumas, that kind of stuff. So, Changing their their glucose level and and getting them out of a moldy environment will help them, but it's not gonna it's not gonna fix them. So in the population I see, managing those those kind of external what's I call exogenous uh, features of anxiety, blood sugar issues, hormones, you know that kind of thing, it will help. It'll bring them down to a certain level, but it won't actually get them to that healing place. Now, you, I think, just have a natural sense of resilience, Ben. Like, and it was part of, like, when we were talking earlier on, when you just decided, like, I'm not going to do this anymore, right? Like, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to do that. Now, I think that probably came from some kind of subcortical thing that's in you that says, look, I'm not going to do this. And I, to some extent, I have the same kind of thing. It's like, I'm not going to be a victim for the rest of my life, right? And I think we get to a certain point, and in a way, I think there is, kind of this subcortical program of strength that we do have in us. That after we get to a certain area of of like rock bottom or just frustration, we have this, my mother calls it a a core of steel. Like we get this core of steel that says, I'm not freaking doing this anymore. And I'm going to start changing things, you know? And that's when I really started changing things in my own life. Now I had LSD to help me sort of see that what I was doing was really just harming myself. And just creating my own anxiety. So that gave my little subcortical structures a little kick. But in general, you know, I've always been like, I'm not gonna, like Wayne Dyer says, you know, like I I, I have anxiety, but anxiety doesn't have me kind of thing. So it is one of those things where you just decide, I'm not gonna do this anymore. And then I really started researching what does work, what did work with me, what helps my patients, what helps my family, you know, what helps my friends. Like a lot of people come to me. Because since COVID, man, like if you had a, a subclinical anxiety issue before COVID, well, I almost guarantee you are gonna have a full-blown anxiety issue after COVID, because all anxiety is really separation anxiety, and it's and it's mostly separation from yourself,
0: really. That was the biggest light bulb light bulb thing that I got from your book, and N- Natasha as well. Uh, you know what you just said: all anxiety is separation anxiety, and it's really separation from yourself that right there uh, alone that sentence alone is enough for you to like turn some light bulbs on right there
1: yeah and the other sentence that that uh my friends really love is like anxiety is only trying to protect you like it's uh, you, you when you were younger you had to become hyper vigilant because you perceived that becoming hyper vigilant was the only place you had control because a lot of what people with anxiety hate more than anything else is uncertainty like, so anxiety is basically another name for uncertainty, intolerance. So once we learn how to, how to be able to grasp and hold uncertainty and really relish the uncertainty, and it reminds me of like Kyle Cease's work too, when, when Kyle Cease says, you know, this is really uncertain, and I love that. This is really painful, and I love that. So we tax on, and I love that, to the end of anything that may be perceived as negative, which makes you look at things in a very different way which brings me back to what you were saying before about the gratitude. Like the gratitude will change your physiology, but it's very difficult, especially for people who are in in victim and deep in anxiety to really cultivate that sense of gratitude for a number of reasons. One is that feeling good isn't safe. So when you start feeling good from gratitude, like this is is really high level stuff. Like when you start feeling good from gratitude, there's a part of your, your unconscious mind that goes, hey, we can't feel good. We're not allowed to feel good. Feeling good isn't safe. This is the biggest obstacle that I have in getting people better from anxiety is that they're afraid to feel better. They're anxious about feeling better.
0: So if that's not a catch-22, I don't know what is. You know, that's so fascinating that you said that because we're doing a... I have a a Keto Camp Academy where I have hundreds of students and every month we do a, a challenge. This month, the challenge is to do... Of Tony Robbins' 15 minute priming uh, routine where it's a YouTube video. but part of that is experience three minutes of gratitude, uh, three minutes of sending love to people, but putting yourself in this safe place and I love it. I, I just it's a great way. but there's some members that have been posting in the group that like all these things came up for them and it's so difficult for them to do the challenge. And I'm there thinking, wow, like I had a completely different experience, but it makes total sense. Their, their body and their mind is not letting them feel safe. Yeah, it wasn't
1: probably because it wasn't safe to feel safe as a child. They had an alcoholic parent or a parent who was really inconsistent with them or an environment that was really inconsistent. They didn't get enough food to eat, you know? So anytime that that sort of impregnates our subconscious mind and it becomes a way that we view the world so that when we start seeing things that are going well, and I see a lot of people who have that mentality who get into a relationship and the relationship's going almost too good and they have to break it off because it feels too good. So it's like, it's, it's really training people. And you have to do this slowly. Like you can't all of a sudden, you know, put people into a 30 minute, like loving kindness meditation and expect them not the back of their head, not to blow up if they've had this kind of childhood. So you have to do it slowly. And what I do with people is I bring them into safety for maybe a minute or two. And then I bring them back into that alarm. If they have that, you know, I, I was dealing with a, a woman the other day and she had this narcissistic mom. She had this typical, you know, fifth chakra kind of thing. And again, as a medical doctor, I want to have a seizure when I say stuff like that. But she had this like this chakra kind of thing. Like I can't say, I'm I, almost speechless at this point. It's like, okay, let's just put our hand on that that sort of warm, like pressure area in your throat. Can we just sort of see that as your younger self and just allow that to be there? And she started to cry. And this happens all the time. Is like when you... <laughs> find that alarm in your body realize that it's your younger self asking for your love and attention and you start giving it to them that is allowed like we do we do allow that because we're actually going at the root cause of the problem but we can't do that for very long i can only keep her in that positive place for like 30 to 60 seconds and then we come back out it's like okay and then what, what other things did your mom used to do to you? It's why, well, she'd lock me in a closet or we would do this and she do that. You know, so I basically take them back and forth, back and forth. And what I'm doing is I'm trying to slowly change her unconscious, change those subcortical structures. So she will know unconsciously that being safe is okay. Even if it's just for 30 to 60 to 90 seconds, you know? And then that, once I get that, and when, once we start doing that, then we can go into two minutes and we can go into five minutes, but we can't all of a sudden for 30 minutes go, look, you're going to feel you know tremendously great. So that may be what's happening with your group is that you can only feel so good for so long before those old alarms get fired up
0: again. Makes sense. It's like training a muscle. You know, yeah. you don't yeah. run a marathon if you don't train for it. You
1: train Unless you're David
0: it. Goggins, yeah. Unless you're David Goggins, who's just, you know, he's an outlier. January is here. Can you believe it? How are you doing with your New Year's resolutions? Mine was pretty easy to focus on my well-being. And we all know that the foundation of well-being is a good night's sleep. I call it the foundation of health. Sleep is like the Swiss army knife of health. So if I could just do one thing to improve my sleep and overall well-being, it's taking the number one mineral For that, which also helps me personally on so many levels I can't fully describe it, yes, I'm talking about magnesium. Actually, I'm talking about the magnesium breakthrough by BiOptimizers. The seven different forms of magnesium in this supplement are involved in over 300 enzymatic reactions in the body. Pretty much every function In your body gets upgraded when you take magnesium, from the quality of your sleep to your brain function, from metabolism to stress levels. And let's face it, even if your 2024 resolution is not to focus on your health as it is mine, how are you really going to be able to achieve all of your goals without quality sleep and stress management support? Do yourself a favor and make magnesium breakthrough part of your daily routine this year so you can get the vitality you need to conquer your dreams. So Keto Camper, head over to buyoptimizers.com slash ketocamp or simply click the link in the podcast notes down below. Use the coupon code KETOCAMP10 to get 10% off any order. That's buyoptimizers.com slash camp. coupon code KETOCAMP10. Check out the link in the notes down below. A couple of things before we land the plane here. You know, we mentioned sure. vi- uh, gratitude, which I call uh, vitamin G because I yeah. think it's really the most oh, it's vitamin. important vitamin. Absolutely, Yep. Yeah. What role in relation to gratitude and in relation to the universal law that states what you feed energy to expands? But let's bring that into a scientific conversation for those who don't like the woo. Let's talk about the reticular activating system and the role that played, right? That tiny little um, at, uh, size of your pinky, right? And, and your brainstem, that is your, you could explain it, but it's your way of kind of filtering out all the stimulation. So how, how does that work? And how can we reprogram the RIS to filter out, to, to see the things that we want it to see? Yeah, I
1: think it's both subcortical and cortical. So reticular activating system, reticular means net. So, so it's kind of like this net-like structure in the, the base of the brain that we really pay attention to. We're all designed as human beings to pay attention to something that's you know approaching rapidly, right? Because it could be something that's going to hurt us, you know, an animal or whatever. But we train ourselves to look for certain things in our environment that were scary to us as children. So for example, for me, with my father, I was constantly looking at him like if he had a, a thing where he was trying to build something in the garage or whatever and he was frustrated and he would like throw a hammer or hit something hard or, or be frustrated immediately my reticular activating system would go okay he's going psychotic again what are we going to do and even at like 7 or 8 years old so it's it's a matter of okay how can we recognize the things that are are specifically triggering to us so for me When I see someone kind of lose their mind a little bit, that's very triggering. When I was a medical resident and I was working psych, that was one of the hardest, even though I only worked from like, you know, as an intern on psych, you only really work from seven till three unless you're on call. So it's a pretty easy schedule. But it was the hardest rotation for me because I would see a lot of people with schizophrenia. And schizophrenics smell a certain way. And I would smell that smell and smell. Smell is one of the, one of the most powerful activators of the emotional part of our brain and i think that comes from physiology because like fifty thousand years ago when you smelled a predator or you smelled a warring tribe you had to do something right away so that's still in us and the other funny thing about smell from a neuroscience point of view is that smell is the only sense of our five senses that doesn't get pre-processed by a a, a place in our brain called the thalamus so the smell doesn't get pre-processed, it goes right into the emotional part of our brain. and I think because of that old evolutionary perspective, right? So we can actually use smell as a way of grounding ourselves. A lot of people with panic attacks, I get them to find a essential oil like lavender or chamomile or something that they and carry it around with them. and then when they when they feel that they can start smelling this thing which which a brings them into the present moment, takes them out of the panic. It overwhelms that you know sort of emotional part of the brain. And in some people, it works extremely well having essential oil for a panic attack. Now, so it it is about trying to find what your triggers are and slowly, you know, going into those triggers and then coming out of them and going into them. And, And this is sometimes where we need a therapist because people that have been abused, I'll tell you, can't do this on their own. Like if you've got someone who is sexually or emotionally or physically abused as a child, You can't tell them like, go and do this on your own because you can't. It's like, it's just too powerful for them. So they need some help. They need another person's nervous system there to kind of regulate them through it. But if you have minor traumas, if you have minor things that, and I consider my stuff with my dad relatively minor compared to some of the, the traumas that are out there. Not that I'm trauma comparing, but it's really important to kind of bring yourself into that trauma and then sort of bring yourself out of it with a breath or whatever. I'm creating some stuff in the new year, like yoga nidras, specific yoga nidra for alarm and that kind of stuff. So I'm creating this stuff now so that people, it'll probably be a two stage thing where the first half hour will be how to find your alarm. Where is it? You know, How much of it is your inner child asking for your help? And then the second part of it will be kind of a yoga nidra kind of thing about allowing that specific part to just completely relax and let go and just see that it's safe because the amygdala has no sense of time. So basically, if you got bitten by a dog when you're four years old, you consciously may not remember that, but your unconscious will remember it. So you'll a, a, a dog will run up to you when you're 35 years old and you will freak out. You go, why did I freak out about that dog? And it's like, because the amygdala never forgets." The dog out. will sense it too. Exactly. Exactly. And then and then what'll happen is that you get tracked back into that particular place of the original trauma. So there is this theory that says that if you experience a significant trauma as a child and you see something in your present day envi- uh, environment that is very reminiscent of that old trauma, it will age regress you back to the time of that trauma because of the way the amygdala works, right? So in a way, you know, if we had chronic stress, which I did and a lot of people did, you know, especially with alcoholic parents and parents who are abusive or whatever, to chronic stress, you will get pushed back into that time when you were like 7, 8, 10 years old, and you will react at that level. But the problem is you don't realize that you've just regressed to a 9-year-old and you think that you can still handle things. But you're 9 years old because your amygdala has has emotionally... I can't remember who coined this phrase, but it's a great one. Emotionally time traveled you back to the time of your original trauma because there is this theory that says if you experience a significant trauma as a child, part of you stays locked at that age until we bring it back up, until we bring you and and bring you back into the present moment. So that's where things like mirror work come in. When I work with people, I give them mirror work. So I get them to take a a place where they were, you know, for you, it's like, when your mom was working three jobs and she wasn't around, you have a picture of yourself at that particular time. Put it behind your mirror and talk to that guy and say, you know, it must have been really hard for you when mom wasn't around you know and then i want you to look right in the mirror at yourself and see your present day ben and say hey you know what we're doing this we're present we're here we're here and then go back to the child and say you know that how hard was that for you and sometimes the child will will in your mind tell you and other times it's kind of like it's kind of a hard sell to kind of connect with that child but what i'm doing is i'm training your unconscious to show that child that he isn't 6 years old with a mom who isn't around anymore He's you now. And on top of that, you are never, ever going to leave him again because we all have this feeling when we have this chronic anxiety that we are going to get left in the same position that we were when we were children. So we reassure that part of us. I mean, there's so much to how I I treat people for anxiety, but these are big ones. It's like, You've got to show that child that you will never ever leave them. You will always be with them. You will always see them, hear them, protect them, and love them for the rest of their days. They are not gonna be, you're not gonna push down their pain anymore, you're not gonna push their trauma away anymore. Whatever they feel is good with you. And then if you do that thing with the mirror, you show them, you show that child that, hey, you're not actually a five-year-old. Part of you feels like you're still stuck there. But when you show that child's unconscious mind, which is your unconscious mind, that you
0: are not stuck there anymore, you can actually start to heal. That is so powerful. Oh, that exercise is so powerful. I have one more topic to cover with you. Um, and then I'm going to share a quote with you at the end. And I want to hear your thoughts on the quote. But the topic is surrounding men and depression and suicide. And um, we have saw recently the um, gentleman Twitch, the DJ for Ellen, and he's dancing with the stars. He committed suicide. We've seen Robin Williams and a lot of men who are Perceived as being happy and smiling who end up taking their lives. And I've heard you say a couple of things that were made a lot of sense to me. You said we rarely see lone gun women. It's usually lone gun men that we see. And the number one fear of men is fearing weak. Men equate sharing feelings with feeling weak. So I'd love for you to touch upon why there's a three times more suicide and drug use with men versus women. Your thoughts on Twitch and just men depression and suicide in general.
1: Yeah. I mean I take a lot of flack for this, but but I, I don't think men are as emotionally intelligent as women. I actually agree with you. In general, yeah, yeah. in general, in general. And this is the reason why, you know, men shoot up department stores or schools. There's a bunch of reasons why men don't seek therapy. They don't see the need. I remember years ago, and I'm trying to find this study, and I, I hope I didn't dream it. But basically, this is the, the crux of the study. So what they did was they put men and women, age match controls, whatever, into functional MRI scanners, and then they would flash complex emotion words like grief, frightened, or whatever. And in the women's minds, in the women's brains, about 14 places would kind of light up. And in the men's minds, about four places would light up. So there's another uh, thing that I like to quote. Lisa Feldman Barrett wrote this book called How Emotions Are Made. And she, she said in that book, the more emotion words you know, the more emotionally intelligent you are. Interesting. I'm not sure if she said it or she was quoting someone else that said it, but I know it's in that book. So I don't think men use a lot of emotion words. I don't think that we talk to each other about emotion. And I think that it is kind of put into us from a very young age. That we aren't supposed to be emotional, and I think that's evolutionary too. I think that, you know, uh, we were the ones that had to go out and kill the animals and that kind of thing, so we had to be a little bit detached from our emotions to do that.
0: So you think you think it's it's a genetic thing, and then also the environment, meaning movies, television, what um, absolutely our society kind of demonstrates what men should be like.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think we absorb this stuff as males. Uh, Younger and and it's subcortical too. Like you know, when you're three years old and you get pushed down on the playground and you start to cry, the other boys will make damn sure that you know they'll ridicule you for crying. That kind of thing. So you learn, you know, you sort of operantly conditioned. Hey, I shouldn't cry because it's just going to hurt way more because these these other guys are going to you know. And then I get people saying, oh, it's it's women. Women are basically making that. It's like I don't care where the originators of this thing are, but I know for sure that boys police other boys. They, they don't allow them to have full expression of their emotions. And again, that becomes a subcortical thing because it becomes how we're trained to be. And there's one of the things that I, what Dr. Neufeld, my, my mentor in developmental psychology, you know, he said that tears are adaptive. They allow the brain to adapt to something that, they, that we cannot change. So if you're going through a divorce, if your pets just died, if you can't change these things, Tears are one of those things that, that change your brain's perspective on something that you cannot externally change. But if men aren't allowed to have those tears, it just builds up inside them. Like, like Bill Burr has this bit of a, just stuff it down, just stuff it down, just stuff it down. You know, and, it just, and it's true. And I think that's what happens to us. That's why we die younger. Uh, I think that's why we have, in a way, more kind of chronic disease, not autoimmune disease, which women have more autoimmune disease than men. So it's, it's really, it's, it's hard to get a one size fits all thing on everything. And you don't know what someone's going through too. Like this is what I see with people as far as Twitch goes, you know, you don't know what kind of childhood he had. And a lot of people will will create the counter personality to how they felt when they were younger. For me, I felt very weak as a child. I was very small. Uh, I was very sensitive. I would cry. I didn't like to fight, this kind of stuff. So when I was about 19 or 20, my best friend, Don, who still lives, he he became a trial lawyer and I became a doctor. We still live like three blocks from each other. Started working out with weights when we were 19. And I put like 35 pounds of muscle on my frame, which looked ridiculous now that I look back in pictures, um, but no one bothered me anymore no one challenged me anymore. So, so I had this thing like, Oh, okay. I've got this secret bullet now. I'll just, I'll just wear this, this armor, this shield of muscle. And, and uh, who's the, the actor, like the big um, wrestler, actor, John, John John Cena. He he was talking about that too. He's like, when I was younger, I was this skinny kid. I got pushed around and then all of a sudden he just started bulking up and men didn't bother him anymore. So I, I think, you know, we don't know what kind of trauma Twitch had, if, if any, but my my guess is that there was something significant in there and sometimes what we do is we create this persona like i create this kind of superhero persona like i'm a doctor and a stand up comic and all that kind of stuff and and underneath that i'm fairly insecure about you know my position in the world and and i love what i know and i love sharing what i know and that kind of thing so it is one of these things that i think we we create these personas to protect ourselves and i think we know that they're not real you know we know that these things aren't real and then eventually people know us for that personality and they expect it from us and then if we can't quite provide it i think our our, you know i think those subcortical structures just start to fry out you know like this was something i used to cope and adapt and it worked like a hot damn and worry is kind of the same thing like worry Is actually making the uncertain a little more certain. When we worry about something, we make it a little more certain to happen, ironically. So there is this thing that we make the uncertain a little more certain, and that's very seductive to the brain. You know, we get dopamine. When we start feeling like we're on the right track, we get this dopamine hit. You know, not that it's all reward, because it isn't dopamine is more about motivation than it is about reward. But it's like, okay, I'm on the right track. I'm doing this. So I think when men are rewarded for being stoic in movies and all that kind of stuff, I think that we just get into this framework, like we can't show vulnerability. And I think it's really important to understand there's a difference between victimhood and vulnerability. And I think that's where we're going to go, hopefully with men is being able to show that I'm vulnerable, but I'm not a victim. Because as soon as you're a victim, both men and women will turn (laughs) on you. But if you can be vulnerable, that's different. And I think, you know, adding in the ability to have some tears, you know, allowing vulnerability to come in. I don't know. Here's the other, the bigger question too. I don't know if our society would even open the door to male vulnerability, let alone victimhood. Like, I don't even know if that's going to happen. And until it does, you know, and still we, because men are kind of treated as expendable. You know, in you know, through the ages, that's kind of how we're doing. And that's why I love a lot of Jordan Peterson's work is like showing young men, look, you're not expendable. You you have the power to change your own life. And I think because the pendulum has swung so far to the female side, female empowerment side, that the young males are really taking it on the chin. Like they're really looking at the world like, where is my place? You know, how am I supposed to act? How am I supposed to be when I've got this toxic masculinity? So men are, you know, really feeling claustrophobic, especially young men, I think. So kind of a long answer to your question, but I think it's because men just don't express what's going on inside them. And I think one of the universal things about therapy that I hear from men and women is after their first two or three sessions, they may actually feel worse because they're bringing up their old stuff, but they're actually getting it out. They're actually allowing it to, you know, it's not sitting inside of their mind and their body so much anymore. They're actually getting it out. And when you see it in front of you, it becomes objectified. When you can't see your trauma in front of you, it is it is you. Like, it, it takes you over. So that's probably the best answer I can give
0: you as far as that kind of stuff goes. It's a great answer. And I love the distinction between being a victim and being vulnerable. Big difference there. Would a male benefit from... Because you, you just said that it's, it's very important to express what's going on with you. And that could be with a therapist, with a friend. But would there be a benefit to a person, let's say, starting a podcast and it's a solo podcast and they explain what's going on with them and how they're dealing with things. Would that person benefit from putting it on a podcast or just a video that nobody sees? Is there a benefit to doing that as well? Yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think it's best if it's witnessed somehow.
1: Okay. you know but no that's the thing like if you do it on a podcast know that you're going to get some haters right you're going to get those people that that are just looking for something to take issue with so yeah be very careful with how you do it out there but i mean i think that's the way to go in a way of kind of saving our society is making it okay for men to be vulnerable not victims you know but vulnerable, like this is really painful. When my dog died, it was incredibly painful for me. Like I'm not, I'm probably gonna deal with that with the next year with Buddha, cause I have three dogs and he's the oldest. How old? He's 13 now yeah he's oh, wow. a Labrador, and he's like eighty five pounds. So so you know, typically a, bigger dogs like that don't last. and he's having problems with his his balance and that kind of stuff too. And but he's doing okay in general. the snow came and he was like a puppy again. So I was just like light <laughs> my heart for sure. But until we really allow people to express, you know what's hurting them, um and it may be men's groups. I think men's groups are fantastic because we can express those things with other men. You know, we can express that vulnerability with other men because we know what it's like and we know how how good it feels to get it out to other men. I think there is this thing about, you know, we can't show the weakness to women. I, I think that's almost evolutionary. I think that's just like, we just don't do it. So I think that's why it's hard to do it in a very global format. But I think men's groups are kind of like the way that we start healing our younger men and, you know, older. Because I noticed with me, like I didn't start being really vulnerable with my friends until I was in my fifties, right? Like before that, it was this macho competition. Because men, we, by by definition almost, we compete with each other. And I think that's evolutionary as well. So the strongest man gets to breed. I mean, that's, and that's still kind of how it goes, you know? It's still kind of how it works. So it's it's like, it wasn't until I got into like my fifties that it was like, I was telling my friends that I love them and uh, they were really important to me and uh, some of the stuff that was really troubling me and that kind of stuff. And I'm still not great at it. Like I'm much more comfortable in the counselor role than the counseled role. So, and I noticed that with my friends too, because I went through a real hard time back in December there when Buddha had a hard time, my, my dog had a hard time sort of standing up and that kind of thing. And I noticed it's like, I should call somebody, but I didn't, I wouldn't, you know? So I still got a ways to go.
0: Yeah, well... I love that you shared that. Last thing that I wanted to share with you, are you familiar with uh, landmark education? Oh, yeah. I did their, uh,
1: what do they call the opening thing? Like uh, the, the, the landmark forum. weekend. The landmark forum. I did
0: yeah. that in 2005. Yeah. Oh, wow. 2005, right? Yes. So awesome. So, that you was know, a long
1: time ago, <laughs> Sonny. I was, I was yeah. just
0: starting college, actually. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so Warner Erhard is um, kind of like the mind behind that. And he. I did the whole the curriculum, uh, the forum, self-expression leadership and the advanced course. And it really made a big difference for me. But, And I love what I learned there. And one of the things you said was that the the mind, the brain is this this meaning-making machine. And the quote is relevant to that. So I'm going to read the quote to you. And this is a quote that a friend of mine, because I actually meet with a group of guys, like to your point, we just met a few days ago in South Beach. We talk about our challenges, how we can support each other. And this is one of the quotes that my friend who introduced me to Landmark shared with me that I now have. So I'd love to read it to you and just hear your thoughts on it for the, sure. as we close this episode out. Okay, so here's the quote. The presence of empty and meaningless is the title. Have people done things you wish they didn't do? Me too. Have people not done things you wish they had done? Me too. What did they do? People did what they did and they didn't do what they didn't do. And in the absence of a story, it's over now. Have you done things you wish you didn't do? Me too. Me too. Have you not done things you wish you had done? Me too. What did you do? I did what I did and I didn't do what I didn't do. And in the absence of the story, it's over now. In the history of all civilizations and in the universe and all the planets, did the things happen you wish didn't happen? Me too. Did things you wish had didn't happened happened? Me too. What happened? What happened is exactly what happened and what didn't happen is exactly what didn't happen. Nothing has ever happened that didn't happen and nothing has ever not happened that happened. And in the absence of a story, it's over now. What's there? Nothing. And in the space of nothing, what's available? Everything and anything. Yeah, it's
1: a powerful quote. You know, I find, and I only did the forum, so I I don't want to speak ill of Landmark. I found them very cognitive, right? So in the mind body spirit realm, I found them heavily weighted towards the mind part. And there's nothing wrong with that because they're a self development organization, right? But I think if you're really, I remember one of the one of the things that people were really getting upset about was one of the the, the instructors said, you know, life inherently has no meaning. Yes, <laughs> and that <laughs> may be really true, not. and that may be true, and it may not be true as well. But the the way the, the adamant nature of the instructor that life had no meaning and how people were just losing their freaking minds about it. I remember this that. Too. Okay. <laughs> so thinking, yeah. So it is one of those things where it's like, okay, well, it has meaning if you think it has meaning. There is a God if you believe there's a God. So who is Landmark Forum to tell me that there's no God? Not that I'm religious or whatever. Who are they to tell me that life has no meaning? It's a great little construct. It's like Kyle Cease's thing. And I love that. So you can actually go around and go, well, maybe it doesn't have any meaning. But I know the way neurophysiology works, and neurophysiology, especially dopamine, works on meaning. It works on, if I get this thing, I'm going to be happy. Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know, right? But I know that human beings and neurophysiology and neurochemicals work on meaning because the mind is a meaning-making machine. And I think what they're getting at is that your mind can be looked at as this objective kind of part of you, which is true, right? But it's also connected to this subcortical part of it, which I was talking about earlier, which is highly, highly focused on meaning and stuff that we can explain cognitively. So that was my thing about Landmark. I thought it was brilliant in so many ways, and it gave me so many insights. But what I walked out, why I didn't go on with the advanced course, is I didn't detect a whole lot of spirit there, uh, a whole lot of body. It was very cognitive. It was very like you know make make a what do they call it? Make an unreasonable request or whatever it is like that kind of stuff. You know, which is great. I think all that stuff is fantastic. It's like, but do you know where that is coming from? Like it's it's really this holistic kind of place. And that, you know, Einstein said that the um, problem of the problem of the mind can't be solved at the same level that it was created. And and that was kind of like the thing that came to me with landmark two is like, look, you guys have got this really great understanding and this really great format. And it's like, but from a neuroscience point of view, it's kind of like, and a spiritual point of view, there's gotta be something in there that kind of pulls people into that because spirit is where your motivation comes from. Your cognition will motivate you too, but you know, to really get something and to really work with it and to really heal to really change that you have to go at the mind body and spirit level and i didn't find a whole lot of the of the the uh, ladder in in landmark but i still think it's a fantastic and i'm still glad that i took it i still use stuff that i learned from it from this day and if i had to go in there and 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 add some stuff to it i i would happily go in there and start tinkering around with some of the stuff that they talk about at least to talk about them because maybe i'm wrong you know maybe they do have mind and and, and body and spirit all in there and i just don't see it you know that's the other thing. And as I get older and as I look into sort of neuroscience more and philosophy more and stuff, I get less and less attached to to what I believe personally, but what I do get attached to is things that heal people. So when they, when people are healing with the stuff that I use, I get attached to that stuff. And if people attack that, I get a little upset. But I also can see the other side of that too because I certainly don't have all the answers. I just have a very different perspective. About what anxiety is than 99.99% of psychologists and psychiatrists and just general medical doctors.
0: That's fair and totally respectable. I love that. Well, Russell, this has been an exceptional conversation. I've got a lot of vitamin G for you, gratitude for you. Your book is called Anxiety RX, a new prescription for anxiety relief from the doctor who created it, right there. If you're watching on YouTube, um, it's available on Amazon bookstores, anywhere specifically you wanna send them to go for the book and then your social media Usually Amazon
1: is like the easiest. You know, a lot of people give Amazon a lot of flack and that kind of stuff, but it's it's the easiest out of all of the places to go. Like you can order it from your bookstore and that kind of stuff too. Uh, but usually that's kind of the easiest. And I'm 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 really just trying to get this book out to as many people as possible. And like Ben and I, you were talking, it's like, I really love hearing from therapists that have read the book. And it's like, I really start using this with my, my clients, my patients. And it really does work, you know, almost better than the way I was trained in my counseling program. Like it's just a completely different paradigm. So I want to get a, I wanted to get the book out to as many people as I possibly can. I'm right at 30,000 right now. It's sold 20,000 in the last three and a half months. So it really seems to be taking off, which I'm really happy about. But it's mostly about getting a new paradigm and looking at anxiety because the way we're dealing with it now in conventional medicine and traditional therapy is not working fully. It's helping. Cognitive stuff helps, no doubt about it. But it's not actually healing people.
0: Yeah, amen to that. And your their book is also available on Audible. That's actually how I consumed it. And you read it. You're funny. It's It's really well done. And I also did, I narrated my audio book and I know for me, it was a big challenge. So I respect authors that read their books. I know how much of a pain of an ass it was for oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> so congrats. Yeah, it was. It,
1: my, my wife didn't like me when I was, you know, the three months <laughs> that it took me to read that thing. You know, she didn't
0: like me very much. I, I totally understand the pain there. Um, what are you grateful for as we just wrapped this up real quick? What are you grateful for today? I'm grateful for for
1: allowing, you know, Platforms to express a different way of healing. You know, with my dad, he went through so many different treatments and ECT and drugs and that kind of thing, and nothing really helped him. So I I do admit to having a little bit of a bias against traditional therapy, which comes out in some of my little snarky Instagram posts and that kind of stuff. Yes, it does, you know. And that comes from the fact that, you know, but to be honest, you know, even if my dad presented today with exactly the same symptoms, I don't think his fate would have been any different. So I'm grateful for my dad. I'm grateful for him just showing me for the first 10 years of my life what a dad is supposed to do because I have two stepsons now and he's really helped me understand like that's how I interact with him. So I'm very grateful for my father for that. I'm really grateful for my stepsons. I'm really grateful for my, for my wives. I've had three of them. <laughs> <laughs> And that's part of my inability to, you know, to, to connect with people that I've, you know, hopefully fixed over the last 10 years. So yeah, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to be able to write and, 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 and that people really, they really, they, they connect with what I talk about, you know, they really understand it. And, and it's not, I'm not just on my own with things because I do doubt myself quite a bit. Um, and I think most people that, that create a new paradigm on something, you have to, you have to doubt yourself, you have to anticipate, you know, what people are going to say against it. But I really appreciate the opportunity to go out. I really appreciate great interviewers that ask me great questions that allow this stuff to come out. So I, I'm grateful for you, Ben. I'm just, you know, I'm really just grateful for the chance to express what I know and make make my father's pain Means something to help other people because it, it couldn't help him. But if his pain helps other people, that's kind of what I talk about a lot. So that's what I'm really grateful for.
0: That's beautiful. I'm grateful for you and your incredible work. Thank you so much for going overtime with me. I know you're a little snowed in there. Yeah, no, I got nothing else to do but shovel snow now. (laughs) Go follow Russell on his Instagram is at the anxiety MD. It's an incredible resource for you. And we'll do a round two in the future. Congratulations on your success. And thank you so much for the conversation, Russell. Thanks, man. Anytime. Well, there you have it. I told you this was going to be a life changing episode. You might have cried, you might have relived some trauma, and now you understand the framework for really putting your body in a healing state. I really hope and pray this made a big difference for you. And don't let it stop here. Go get his book, The Anxiety RX. I will put that link in the notes down below to get his book. His Instagram is fantastic. Go follow him on Instagram as well. His Instagram handle is at TheAnxietyMD. I'll put a link for that down below as well. He has a great YouTube. Uh, He also has a podcast. He's just doing some incredible work. And his website is TheAnxietyMD.com. We'll drop that down below in the podcast notes. If this was a valuable conversation, please consider sharing it with somebody you know please share it with a friend, a family member, somebody you know is going through depression, anxiety. And if you want to watch the video format of today's interview with Dr. Russell Kennedy or all or any uh, of our podcast episodes, that could be found on our YouTube channel which is youtube.com/ketocamp. Please leave the show a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening from and hey, if you want to be a part of my next detox group, two spots left, head over to ketocampdetox.com. I'll put a link down below. And uh, I really hope you have an incredible rest of your day. Love and appreciate you. I've got vitamin G for you, Keto Camper, and I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice.